everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the 1960s X-Men comics. Except, like we have been lately, we've been taking a lot of the 2000s books that are set in the 1960s or in the prehistory. Today we're going to be reviewing X-Men Origins Cyclops number one, which is a book from January 2010. But before we get there, I am thrilled to welcome back my friend Jamie Faye to the show, as well as Benjamin Rathbone, a new friend and the legendary artist, I'm gonna keep saying that, <laughs> Bob Hall, who I had the wonderful experience of meeting at uh, FanX, who also did the gorgeous piece of Moses Magnum on my wall, if you guys have been following my art wall progress. Uh, let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know where we might know you from, what your gender pronouns are. And the question uh, I have based on today's comic book is name a time in your life when someone gave you way too much responsibility. Uh, so as we're introducing ourselves, let's go in the order of Bob, Ben, and then Jamie. Okay, well, people know me from uh, Marvel Comics, uh, DC Comics, and Valiant. Uh, for Marvel, I did almost all of their characters at one time or the other, except the X-Men. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was really mainly with the Avengers side. I did um, the Champions, which was um, set, it was before uh, the, it was, it was after the Avengers uh, comic had uh, faded. They had canceled it. People forget that it was canceled once. And uh, before they started the new series. And so it was uh, the Angel and uh, the Icemen were, um, characters in in the champions so i guess i worked with them then and i did one issue of uh, new mutants that's it um but i did the uh, west coast avengers um considered the co-creator of that i never know what co-creator means but that's what i am uh did the first four issues of that and introduced it did two runs on the avengers um a lot of uh, team up uh Spider-Man meets the meets Saturday Night Live, uh, Emperor Doom, and just a ton. I did most of their characters at one time or the other, except the X-Men. Squadron and, Supreme, Daredevil, Defenders. No. Yeah, you have a long <laughs> list, my friend. And I was at, at an editor for a while. Then I went over to Valiant, and mainly because uh, Jim Shooter was willing to let me write as well as draw. And I did uh, Shadow Man then for about um, 30 some issues and after that did uh, uh, a comic called armed and dangerous for them and then went to dc and did batman special projects they called them prestige products uh, their <laughs> series it was a prestige series which is always a little embarrassing to say but that's what it was and uh, uh, did uh, extra extra length batman uh, joker stuff Bob, can you think of a time in your life when someone gave you way too much responsibility? Yeah, they assigned me the um, Fantastic Four uh, uh, annual in, back in the early 70s, somewhere in the mid-70s. And it was beyond me. Um, it was just too much for, I'm not the fastest person in the world, and it was the first time I'd been asked to do an annual. And uh, after, and also I had an absolutely clear idea of what the Fantastic Four should look like. And at that time, I was just incapable of, of getting them to look right. And I took forever and finally had to go back and say, guys, I can't finish this. You got to get somebody faster than me to do it. 
which was horribly embarrassing. I thought I would never work for them again and didn't realize until I was an editor, actually, that that what I did was normal. And at least they were grateful that I didn't just let it sit on my kitchen table for two more weeks. It's good to know your limitations. Do you remember which annual that was? No. No, I'll I'll look it up. I reviewed all your work, but I don't remember. I'll look it up while we're talking. Uh, Let's go over to to Ben next. Hi, Ben. Hi. How's everybody doing? Uh, My name is uh, Ben Rathbone. Um, uh, I use he, him pronouns. Um, If you know me from anywhere, it it would be from my podcast, Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. It's about comic book characters who have uh, died and came back to life. So I do a different character every episode. which as is like as, literally every character four times. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm going to have to quit the podcast before getting to everyone, but but it, it, it's fun for now. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, as far as a time that someone gave me too much responsibility, I um, for my day job, I work at a uh, food bank and I've planned out like these uh, emergency boxes of, of food items that that go to to people that need them. So so kind of every day now, I feel like I'm, I'm given too much responsibility, but but yeah. Absolutely fair. And then I'd like to welcome back Jamie. How are you, my friend? Hey, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm Jamie Fay. I use he, him pronouns. Um, if you know me, it's either from my uh, indie series I worked on, Neverminds and Sentinels for Drumfish Productions, or you probably know me by all of my crazy X-Men fan art that has been polluting the internet since the early 2000s. And uh, what's the time uh, when you got too much responsibility, Jamie? So since everyone did professional, I will do something personal. And at like 14, me and my sister were given the opportunity to babysit two very young children. And we made things based on how like we would make them. And by the end of the night, the kids were like, throwing up all over the place and <laughs> so we had to deal with sick kids cleaning up a house making sure it didn't smell like vomit and by the end of that night i never babysat ever again <laughs> uh lastly i'm chad anderson i use he him pronouns you know me from this show i'm a former marvel comics handbook writer uh, i've got a lot of published work out there I, uh, good Lord, I could trauma dump right now. I feel like my whole life has been defined by too much responsibility from early childhood on. But uh, the the time I think of, I was right out of college by just a couple of years and I got hired. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a mental health uh, professional in my day job. I got hired to be the director of a mental health clinic, clinic for the homeless. And all of my coworkers were like older than me by a minimum of 10 years, one by like 40 years. And I was like the young white guy coming in and taking the leadership reins. And it was not an easy time. <laughs> so I lasted there for a couple of years and then I came out of the closet. So welcome to my new life many years later. Uh, I am so happy to have each of you here. Thank you for spending your afternoon with me today. Uh, so I was at FanX uh, in Salt Lake City a few months ago. I'm walking around up and down the aisles, making contact with people. And I walked by Bob Hall and the name went ding, ding, ding in my brain. And then I had to go wait a minute, that's actually Bob Hall. And I walked up and said, hello. Uh, his wife was there. She was so lovely. Uh, Bob drew uh, Moses Magnum for me right there over the next couple of days. And we had a chance to chat a little bit. But Bob, I am a huge fan of your pencils and your artwork. 
uh, for many years and never expected to meet you. It was such an honor to meet you and so great to have you on the show, my friend. Thank you for being here. Thank you. By the way, if you meet me again and my wife is there, you'll have to talk to her. She's a, a PhD neuropsychologist, so you, you would have a lot to talk about. We definitely would. I did a show recently with uh, Justin Hall and Michael Elliott where we talked about the psychology of fandoms, which was fascinating. Go listen if you haven't. Uh, sometimes these worlds mix together. Uh, and uh, we recently did a Cyclops episode where we talk all about him being neurodivergent. So your wife and I could have a lot to say on this character too. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little bit about your career. By the way, I just looked at my list. Uh, the Fantastic Four annual where you referenced was Fantastic Four annual number 12, where they fight the Sphinx uh, and the Inhumans are in it. So you had lots of characters. And it looks like it was Keith Pollard that stepped in to help you out. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> uh, now, Bob referenced some of his very impressive career earlier, but you may not know Bob is also a playwright, a creative genius in many ways. You are an incredible penciler with the ability to craft scene and story from soap opera to like space epic, uh, seemingly without a pause. Uh, I'm so impressed by the breadth and depth of your work. Uh, I know you grew up in Nebraska and you went to the John Buscema School of Art, if I'm remembering correctly. Tell us a little bit about your journey from a kind of comic book fan or artist into professional. I'd love to hear your story. Well, I was not a comic book uh, fan per se. I became a comic book fan when I was very young and I'm old enough that I come from that era when you were supposed to stop reading comics when you're about 12 or 13 years old. And I did. Uh, I'll tell you about the first how I became a fan, which was I was um, at four years old. I became very ill one night and was vomiting blood. And my folks were panic stricken and took me to the emergency room. And uh, I was in the hospital for several days because they couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me. Uh, it seemed like a long time, but I guess I'm guessing it was more like three days or something. And I felt fine the next day, but they said, no, no, we, we've done the tests on you. You're still sick. And, and fortunately, they had me in a private room, and I was so active that they kept bringing me stuff to try to, you know, toys and stuff. And what they finally got that I really liked was they started bringing me comic books. And I couldn't read yet, but they, the comic books kept piling up, and I was fascinated by them. And then on the third day, they were about to take me out for some tests, and while they were while the nurse was coming in and prepping me, she noticed me scratching behind my ear and, and looked and said, oh, I need to get the doctor right away. And the doctor came in and he looked at me and he said, you've got measles. And what I had was intestinal measles. They hadn't come out. And that was why I was so sick. Wow. And the, doc and the doctor said, wow, you've got measles. Thank God you're in a private room. Uh, you've got to leave the hospital right away. You're going to be fine because it's very contagious. And, oh, by the way, the, the, all those comic books, and there was a giant pile by this time, you've contaminated those and you have to take them with you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was how I got started. And this, for context, if it's okay to state, this would have been right around 1957, 58? No, you're making me too too young. That's This was about 1950. Uh, Okay. Okay. Fantastic. And, and the, um, so I stopped reading them. I, I read them incessantly. My favorites were the Carl Barks things when I was a kid, the Donald, Donald Duck stuff. And I liked all the superheroes, uh, but they were 50 superheroes and pretty much 
if you read them for 10 years, they started even repeating themselves because it was the expectation was there's a turnover, constant turnover of, of, of readers. And so the years go by, I become a theater major and I uh, wanted to be a director and I was and am a pretty darn good director. I'm really good at it. And I was going to go to New York and uh, get started as that. And I got there and realized that I had not nearly enough money to get by. And I immediately got a job directing for a theater in New York, a small theater, but it was a start. And the money was like, I think I was getting 60 bucks a week living trying to live in New York. And I thought, I need a marketable skill of some kind. In the meantime, my, my ex-wife was supporting me. Uh, maybe that's why she was in. She's an ex. I know. No, it's not true. Uh, and a friend suggested that I take a look at comic books because I'd always drawn, and I and I had a sense of drama and storytelling from from the theater. And I looked at it, and I thought I remembered comics when I was a kid, and there were some really well drawn ones and really good ones, but there were also some pretty mediocre bad ones. And I thought, well, I can at least be mediocre and bad. And then he gave me up this pile of comics, and it was the comic books I didn't realize were kind of in the doldrums then, but the art was amazing. It was Barry Windsor Smith's Conan was the first thing I looked at. And then Neil Adams was in his heyday and drawing everything, as was John Buscema. And uh, Bernie Wrightson was, was doing all this horror stuff. And it, it was just a time, Joe Kubert was doing Tarzan. It was just a really great time. Jack Kirby was starting the new, the new Gods. And it was a magical world. And I decided I really wanted to do this. It, it put together everything I'd ever done. And so I put portfolios together. And then there was an ad in the back of, I, I got some work from Charlton. And then there was an ad in the back of Marvel Comics that John Buscema was teaching a, a one-time, it turned out to be a two-time, course in how to draw comics. And uh, you had to show up at this hotel where he was going to teach in a conference room. And I, I suspect that Stan had urged him to do this because they were going to write how to draw comics the Marvel way, uh, which is now a standard book in the business. Yeah, yeah. And, and John felt told me once that he had felt he had to teach in order to know he knew how to draw but how to teach drawing had it had been a long time and he wanted to review all of the stuff and we were we were his his audience for that and i got in the class and um which was amazing absolutely amazing i'd taken all kinds of college courses and blah 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 but i'd never taken a course from somebody who was let's say among the, at least the top 10 in the world at what they did. And there's something about that that's different. Um, and he was truly brilliant, um, could draw anything. You couldn't figure out how. He just moved it, he'd wave his hands around and then drawings would emerge from the page. Mm. And he tried to tell us how he did it. And he'd tried to slow down, but he was like uh, uh, the Sundance kid. He was better when he moved. He was, the factor he went, the better he got. And uh, but at any rate, by the end of the class, I had the 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 for, uh, good fortune of being a little bit more experienced, a little older. I'd put myself through school doing uh, posters and stuff for the theater department, 
and um, also learned a lot of scenery design and stuff. So I'd been drawing. And at the end of the class, John decided, I think he wanted somebody from that class to get a job at Marvel, and he picked me. Um, or maybe he just liked my work. I'm not sure, <laughs> but or, but probably some combination. He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have. And so that so that's how I got into the business. Um, it's also was one of the reasons that I got my first book was the Champions, which was a group book, which was like awful. I mean, you know, like to be thrown. That's, that's like really being thrown to the wolves. You know, you got you're trying to do a keep up with a group book, and I'm sure that they thought that because I was trained by Biasema who was the the expert at doing group books, that I could do it too, which I couldn't. I, I mean, I did. I did it. I, I, I got through it. And people still bring them to me uh, to me to sign, and they say how much they love them. And that's really, really, uh, I'm, I'm grateful because I look at them and say, oh, my God, how did they keep hiring me? <laughs> um, but but uh, that's how I got started. That's fantastic. I love stories of symmetry. Busema being kind of the uh, the original amazing artist on the Avengers, after Kirby, of course, and then you launching the West Coast Avengers years later. That type of symmetry always makes me smile. I love that you brought a sense of storytelling, too. I know you're a playwright and, and an incredible director. I think uh, I, I have not seen this, but in my research, your most famous play is called The Passion of Dracula, which is critically acclaimed and very well known. Uh, to bring that sense of storytelling as a as a um, penciler or as an artist, to be able to craft scenes and structures and facial expressions and relationships in that way, there's a symmetry there that I think a lot of uh, pencilers don't always know how to capture that sense of storytelling. You want to draw the image, but without the storytelling background, I think that can be tricky for a lot of people. Do you think that was good training for your art? Oh, yes. In fact, I, I had... Um... A dinner with Jim Shooter a couple of days ago when I was in uh, doing a um, con in, in Columbus. And we were talking about that, that he, one of the reasons he eventually hired me to be a, a, an editor at Marvel for a short time. And uh, then when he went to Valiant, wanted me to write and draw Shadow Man. And he said it was because he'd seen the plays I'd done and felt that, that there was a connection there. Uh, the, the rules for, which of course everybody can and should break, uh, but 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 the rules for playwriting and the rules for comic book writing are much the same. They're not, and and for film, they're not exactly the same media. Uh, some people really think comics and is just like doing screenshots, and of course it's not. Uh, but 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 there is a relationship between them. Um, it's not that every story has to be done that way, but if you if you have that in your bones that you're doing, you know, you create a situation, and who's the protagonist, and what do they want, what's what are they after, and or does something happen, or are they not after something, but something happens that forces them to be uh, engaged, uh, and then you start working through usually about a, a three act. A, th a three-act story, uh, and again, that that's that's almost a cliche, but it's very nice to know that that format and be able to work in it. The uh, 
Well, you have a long list of things I want to ask you about, but I've kind of hand selected five or six of your favorites of my favorite of your stories. And I want to ask you about those. If you don't have concrete memories of these things, that's okay. I know some of these stories are, are, uh, are in the, uh, in the annals now. Uh, you got to work with Chris Claremont on uh, what is often considered to be a, a legendary issue of Marvel team up with number 74, where Spider-Man meets the entire cast of Saturday Night Live. Uh, infamous people like Gilda Radner make an appearance in the comic book. It is a wonderful read. I got to reread it yesterday for the first time in many years, and it's so fun. Uh, I would love to hear about your work with Chris and how this crazy issue came to be. It's so much fun. Well, the at, at that time, I was being an editor, and uh, Shooter had just taken over, and he were very wisely uh, ended what was called the, the writer-editor period of Marvel, where famous writers had their own... Um, uh, were their own editors, which of course nobody should ever be their own editor, and the the books were all behind. This happened much later in later years. It happened at Image, too. But uh, uh, so he wanted sub editors to to take it over because Marvel was getting really way too big for a one editor to handle, and um, he brought me in as I said because of the of the of the, of the comics. And and everything was behind. So that was so I became an editor, and I said I can only do it for six months, because uh, the play that I'd written was going to be done in London, and we had nothing to do with the production. They just leased it, but we, I was definitely going to go over and what was going to be done in London. I was going to go over and see it. There's no question about that. <laughs> so so one of the jobs that so I'm an editor, and 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 Chris comes in and pitches to Jim the idea of doing a Saturday night thing. And uh, Jim thinks that's a great idea. And they, by the way, they can't reprint it because of course they'd have to get all the rights again. Uh, that's my understanding anyway. The, um, uh, and it was, I, I was, I was directing, it was a, to be a team up book and I was editing team up and um, I, decided that I was not going to let anybody but me draw this. So fortunately, I signed myself to do it because I knew we were going to uh, have to go to 30 Rock, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, that is where they filmed or, or, or taped uh, Saturday Night Live. And still do. And uh, we were going to get to, and I thought at, at the least we were going to get to go and watch them do it. And we we, had, we ended up doing that and and briefly meeting the the, the the cast members and uh so that was fun uh we my only difficulty with it was that i was too poor to have a tv set back then uh and i wasn't watching a lot of television uh, claremont watched television incessantly and he would keep bringing in these things so we um no, that's not true. I had just gotten a TV and I was I was able to watch Saturday Night Live. That's right. It's been a while. I'm sorry. Uh, but I but I hadn't watched a lot of other stuff. And it had been a couple of years since I'd had a television. So fortunately, I knew what Saturday Night Live was about. But he kept in introducing uh, things like Statler and Waldorf from uh, the, Sesame, the, 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 Pup, the Muppets things. And I'd never seen that. And 
that became rather difficult because now there would be nothing to it with the internet. But finding reference on anything uh, that where somebody specifically wanted a face was much harder <laughs> sure. in, in the 70s than it, than it, than it is now. Um, so that part was, was difficult. And th the rest of it was just pure fun. And uh, we did get, um, Belushi invited us to the uh, opening night party for Animal House. And that was that was a thrill. We got to spend a little bit more time with Belushi. We we took him the cover. We gave him that cover, um, and um, Belushi wanted to know if we wanted to go out and smoke a joint in the alley with him. But <laughs> I, and I don't I don't think he really wanted to. I think he thought it was performal. I'm John Belushi. I have to invite people to go smoke a joint with, and <laughs> and uh, uh, Jim. Uh, of course, was representing Marvel, so was, no, no, we can't do that. But, but, but thank you very much. And Bill so Murray, was, Bill Murray is in this issue. Uh, um, Gilda Radner is one of my all-time favorites. Garrett Morris uh, and uh, oh god, I can't think of it. The, the the skinnier woman who was one uh, of the Jane, Jane Curtin. Jane Curtin. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then Stanley is hosting, which is yes, fun. Stanley is hosting, and that's fun. That's fun. And uh, for our Marie, Se Marie, Severin, Marie Severin, Severin inked it. Uh, Marie was famous for doing caricatures for uh, uh, the the original Mad way back. Oh, not, sure. not, not the magazine version, but the before it. But while it was still a comic uh, format, and so that was a thrill. Uh, she was a delightful person. She was working in the bullpen at the time. And uh, uh, she taught me a lot about coloring, but it was also just a thrill to have her ink your work you know i got to interview linda fight once and she sings uh murray severn's praises as just a mm. human being uh and for our x-men fans this is marvel team up uh, uh, number 74 and the villain in this piece is the silver samurai and maybe his weirdest appearance <laughs> <laughs> uh bob i'm going to take it to the avengers next you had a close working relationship i know both as a, a penciler and as an editor or co-editor with jim shooter uh, and you wrote one of the most controversial, or drew one of the most controversial storylines in uh, in Marvel Comics history, even to this point, which is the court martial of Henry Pym. Uh, Hank Pym is the character Giant Man. Uh, he is, uh, or, or Ant Man, but in this issue, he's as a Yellow Jacket. He has later been diagnosed with bipolar, but he is under a lot of pressure in this issue, and he hits his wife Janet Van Dyne across the face. And uh, then he messes up a mission because he's grandstanding. Uh, the, uh, the Avengers court-martial him from the team, and then he builds a robot to try to destroy them so that he could try to save the day and then gets exposed. It's a, it is a rough fall for this character, and he's never quite recovered from it. Uh, I would love to hear some of your insight into this infamous storyline. Um, well, it was... The, the the most infamous part is we're, we're in complete disagreement about what John, Jim intended with that slap. Jim, st Jim still says he didn't even intend the slap. Uh, that uh, he just wanted him to give her a shove and, and she maybe hits against a machine or something like that. I think that's hindsight. I think Jim's a better writer than that. When I think about it, it really doesn't work unless, unless he actively 
slaps her. Uh, but that, but that's controversial. Jim, Jim is is sure that I invented that, and and I still contend that I didn't invent that. But we both agree that that the the contentiousness has helped make it even more iconic. So that's cool. And uh, what I did do was I wrestled with how to do a slap and. This much was true. We I could have done a much more subtle, kind of realistic slap, and was sitting at night. I remember uh, late at night I was working on that, trying to think of laying it out and trying to think which way should it be. And I finally, because the first thing that happened to you when you got a job at Marvel then is you did go into Stanley's office, and it was almost performative that he had to do this famous routine where he would stand on his desk and talk about how much more dynamic a Marvel comic was than a DC comic. And uh, so I, bearing that in mind, I said, no, no, it's a Marvel comic. He's got a, and they're superheroes. He's got a really wacker one. And so that's what I drew. Uh, I don't know if that made it better or more iconic or more horrifying or, or what, but that's what's there. And my only, uh, Justification is that to my my disagreement with Jim about what he intended was I think he really did intend to slap but they he was accused of being in favor he got letters that he was in favor of wife beating mm. which makes no sense whatsoever yeah, but that, that that's that typical kind of the worst part of fandom and um, uh, I think if I think if the character Yellow Jacket was celebrated for having hit Wasp, or if there were no consequences for it, it could come across that way. But this is a, a huge character moment for both. Oh, of them. Okay. very dramatic oh, yes. storytelling. Yeah, and 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 he got what he deserved, and uh, so I think to me, just knowing Jim's, I can understand why Jim is is very sensitive about it because he did get just a lot of crap for it. Sure. Uh, it was the first time that comics had been what adult comics, more adult comics. What did that mean? It meant to a lot of people, it meant more violence, more sex. It to Jim, it meant bringing in real life, more real life situations. And it was the first time that you know a superhero family had fallen apart in this way. So I think the the, the I think that the fandom was just kind of going what about it <laughs> but so i'm sure he was sensitive about it but on the other hand if he's a, he's a damn good writer and if if what pym did was totally unintentional it becomes a whole different kind of tragedy than mm -hmm. than if he actually had to live with the fact that he had actually uh assaulted his wife sure sure and and one one is a tragedy of irony that they're that they're getting rid of him but he really didn't do it and with the real slap it becomes what what was there so I, I but I'm, I'm very proud of, of the issue it's really the most iconic thing I ever did in comics it's the one that people still talk about and I still get asked about at conventions and it did open a door for good or for ill to all kinds of different kinds of stories that um, probably wouldn't have been there 
controversy sells and it's beautifully drawn and it's beautifully rendered and there's a conclusion to the story and it changes the paths of characters moving forward i don't i don't condone spousal abuse but i think it's a really powerful story in the avengers it's tense and you read it and you flip the page and you want to go to the next page again you know uh Mm -hmm. so beautifully done my friend uh jamie Mm -hmm. do you have a question for bob yeah uh i know that you helped launch uh squadron supreme and you left like halfway through the run i was wondering why you left a book that was had such cool characters uh i if i could go back i would probably have said let me finish this up and break down i had really knocked myself out doing full pencils with it all the way through and once they got the next group in that that big group of villains as well there were too many characters i just couldn't make the deadline and do Mm -hmm. that and um yeah like if i could go back i would have said mark mark i can't make it let let me do it and break down uh and everybody listening i'm sure knows what breakdown means it means doing it doing a line drawings with uh, no without the lighting or the the black areas um but as it was it was that I, i just couldn't make it and keep up the quality that i'd been doing and at the time, it seemed like maybe I was on my high horse thinking, I, I don't want to do it if I can't do it that well. Um, the other one was that I stopped, and this one is less nice, but I stopped liking the series. Mm-hmm. At, at, at some point, I felt, no, it, it ended up sort of where Mark was going with it, with the idea that if you're that powerful, surely you would, there would be a fascistic tendency uh, to it. but. What, one thing I've never enjoyed is just where giant groups of, of superheroes fight villains that have compatible special powers. And how does how does this powerful person deal with this powerful person? And I find that kind of boring. Okay. And it's not my forte, but it's where the series went for um, for a while. And I I I that I I. When I look back at it, I think that was that was there kind of in my mind as well. Uh, and we're talking, of course, about the legendary Mark Grenwald, who we love and adore. I'm a, I'm the handbook guy, so Mark was the guy that did the <laughs> handbooks, which I always love. Mark, Mark, very funny, very funny guy. Uh, and then in, the in, squadron, a very, in a very dry kind of way, you know. And then the Squadron Supreme, which is worthy of a much longer conversation, is Marvel's version of the Justice League done with original characters who are direct parodies from their characters. They've been redone many times over the years, but kind of that original series is what would happen if power corrupts, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that's being done in like the boys on television now in a very violent, visceral mm-hmm. way. But it kind of started in this 80s series. Go back and give it a read if you haven't. And again, your pencils are beautiful, and I respect that you knew your limitations. Uh, ben. Yeah, it- it was it was the uh, first thing I did where I was completely satisfied with how the pencils looked. It took me a long time, I think, to get where I was really. I I, I thought about the time I was doing West Coast Avengers that things were looking fine. I mean, my draftsmanship was good, uh, but I thought. Squadron Supreme, I, I I was hitting on all cylinders. I thought it was good. So I really think that's probably why I was very concerned that I m- maintain that that quality. Uh, ben, did you have a question for Bob? 
Yeah, Bob. Uh, so you mentioned not drawing X Men, but you you did draw an issue of uh, the New Mutants, kind of yeah. right smack in the middle of uh, of Rob, Rob Liefeld's takeover of that title. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember how it was, kind of like taking over in the middle of, of that time period. It's such an interesting time in in kind of X Men history, kind of the 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 shift into the the, the '90s aesthetic of of everything. Well, usually when you did a one-shot deal, it meant that you were, um, somebody was behind, or Liefeld needed a break, or he was busy mm -hmm. doing a gene ad, or something like that. Um, and so that was part of it, is you, you did, um, you, you would just come in, if you were available, any of us that were available, when, when something like that would occur, you'd get a call and say, can, I do, can you do a one-shot thing? And so that's what that was. And the fun part of it for me was I did it. I did it a little bit life healthy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I couldn't really reproduce life held, but I didn't do what I would call my style. I, I, the, I, I, I tried to make the characters just because it was fun. There was no particular reason. It just, it it's just a really fun style. Yeah. This is a new adjective in my vocabulary now, Liefeldy. Whenever I see someone with very large <laughs> chests and very tiny legs, I'm going to say, they look Liefeldy. Yes, <laughs> import, most important, do they have feet? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Or, or very large guns. Uh, it's an interesting <laughs> take because you have a, there's like cable fighting Sabretooth in one issue, and then you've got this classic issue that I don't think people often remember of the New Mutants fighting the Skrull Slavers, which is a, it's a really fun one. You did, you did good work there. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, Liefeld. To me, they looked like uh, often looked like ballet dancers from from the knees down. They <laughs> seem to be on point a lot. The uh, the books really took a turn from there. Eighties Marvel into nineties Marvel, particularly the X Men, is nuts. There's a lot mm -hmm. of crazy stuff that took place. Uh, I, uh, I I remember most fondly your West Coast Avengers uh, uh, title. It's just such a random choice. Like we're going to build a team of Avengers in, on the West Coast and uh, call them the West Coast Avengers. And you got to do the initial limited series, one through four, where Hawkeye is selecting his team. One of my all-time favorite characters is Mockingbird. We got Tigra and Wonder Man back who hadn't been in the books in a long time. Uh, and I know it's very fondly remembered, enough so that it got launched into a uh, an ongoing book after you finished your limited. Uh, do you have fond memories of the West Coast Avengers? Absolutely. First of all, um, as I said, it, it was about that time. What had happened? I was not satisfied with. I was I was satisfied with the storytelling on my run on the Avengers, but the draftsmanship wasn't what I wanted it to be. And what I had not done was taken a lot of life drawing, and that happens to like a lot of comic book artists is you begin to if you haven't done a lot of life drawing it's very hard for you to come up with your style because you're always copying somebody else's you're learning by copying somebody else's work so i would learn by maybe maybe most particularly gil kane and and, and john Buscema. i'd go back to them and say you know that 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 anatomy and I wanted to be able to, to make my own choices. And I went and did a lot of life drawing. And so by the time the West Coast Avengers came around, I was very ready, I thought, to, to do something that I could. I, I felt I, I, I sort of owned, owned that. Um, 
And it was always a joy to work with Roger Stern. Uh, Roger is one of the most solid. Me saying somebody is solid almost sounds like a like an insult, and I don't mean it that way. <laughs> uh, Roger was really just a terrific writer, and he would always write you stuff that you could draw. Um, that did not. That sounds so fundamental, but it was something that didn't always happen. Uh, he didn't overwrite. He didn't to do what I call and and panels where somebody would write, uh, you know, Spider-Man hits the guy in the jaw and picks up the vase at the same time, you know, in the same panel. You know, they, they, they would do two actions. Writer, inexperienced act, uh, writers would do two actions in a panel by the same guy, and you can't. Mm -hmm. That's two panels. But but then there wouldn't be enough space for, you know, all that kind of stuff. None of it happened with Roger. He knew what he was doing. And in fact, we had a discussion uh, once and he, and he went for this. I said, if you'll, these are 22 page comics. If you'll write me basically 20 pages and give me two pages to play, you're going to be, I can make you very happy. And, mm -hmm. and, and pretty much he did that. He just gave me room because one of the things that you never had enough room for is it was, Writers would very often, you know, you got to remember, this is Marvel. They're doing a scenario. So rather than laying it out, the whole page as a script, it's easy for them to say, and they fight. And they make that seem as if, <laughs> you know, maybe that's about a page. But usually what they were really wanting is about a three-page thing to happen. So I know um, there's a, I know there's writers out there. I used to read a lot of scripts when I worked for Marvel. There's writers out there that will be like three pages of Spider-Man Venom fighting. And then just leave it to the artist. And another one would be like very detailed. We look at Spider-Man from this <laughs> angle as he swings off the roof and punches Jennifer. Like there's a, there's like extreme detail. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways to script. But I think that collaboration between writer and artist is always what produces the best work. And you and Roger did great together. And it was great fun to do it. And I, almost nobody does the Marvel method anymore. It's become a, a script writer's uh, medium now. People write full scripts, which is what DC always did. But Marvel they gave you a scenario you broke it down into pictures usually making notes as to what they might be saying and occasionally the writer would throw in if he knew very specifically i want the character to be making this speech or something he'd throw it in but otherwise you'd, you'd lay it out first and then he would go back and look and write based on what he was seeing uh, sounds a little backwards but it wasn't because it enabled everybody to really be collaborating and for for the for the artist to be doing what they did best, which was to visualize it, and 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 the writer had to perhaps give up a little bit of his vision, but he would find that often that 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 the vision was improved uh, because the writer would the, the 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 artist would like to go a different direction or go a little further or take a different angle than than the norm and. Uh, and, and some good stuff happened that way. So, uh, Bob, what a sheer delight to hear you share these memories. Uh, when I mm -hmm. say legendary, that's not a word I choose lightly. I think you're just incredible. Uh, and to, to be able to hear firsthand these stories, I just feel richly blessed and enlightened. Thank you for these incredible uh, stories. And we could go to so many other places. I, there's other things I'd love to ask you about. But I, uh, I really appreciate you sharing these stories with us. That's yeah, fun. thank you.
so with that, I think we're going to transition into the issue review for today. We're going to go into X-Men Origins Cyclops number one. This story is called Eyes Wide. From January 2010, the writer is Stuart Moore. The penciler is Jesse Delperdang. The inker is Andy Lanning. Uh, colorist Matt Hollingsworth. Letterer Rob Steen. And editor Nick Lowe. Uh, the only the only one out of these that I've ever associated with is Nick Lowe, who is just a great guy. So uh, I, I don't know any of the others, but this is an interesting issue for a couple of reasons. It's really beautifully done. It takes a little bit of creative license, uh, and so I'm going to do a little bit of setup very quickly because I'm the I'm the nerdy history guy. As we go into this, uh, we did talk a little bit about this when I did a recent Cyclops story. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, which as we record this has not yet been released, but I recently recorded it, so it's all very fresh in my brain. Uh, Cyclops, we do not learn his origin for a very long time. He is kind of hinted at, he's got his brother Havoc, and over time, Chris Claremont takes over the book in around 1974. It's not until 1982 where we learn a little bit of his story. I'm going to read a section of dialogue out of Uncanny X-Men number 156, which is written by Chris Claremont. It's the famous flashback to, and Claremont does this thing where he'll change your understanding of a character in just a single page. And it really is just a page and a half. So I'll be very quickly here. This is when Cyclops realizes his dad, Chris, or Corsair, who's the space pirate, is still alive. And uh, he says, uh, you know, what happened basically? And Corsair says, I was an Air Force test pilot returning from leave in Alaska, a camping trip with your grandparents to join Project Mercury as an astronaut. Your mother, Catherine Ann, you, your brother Alex, and myself were flying an old, De uh, excuse me, De Havilland mosquito I'd rebuilt. We were following the coast south of Cape Yakutaga, when we got a panic call from, an, from Anchorage about an unidentified contact heading our way. The next thing we knew, it was right on top of us. I tried to report the sighting and the ship opened fire. I was the best pilot alive, flying one of the best, the finest birds ever built. That combination, plus a lot of luck, saved us during the initial salvos. Unfortunately, the Mosquito was a wooden aircraft. That proved our undoing. A near miss torched the fuselage and the dogfight was as good as over. We were overland strat, excuse me, we were overland and strapped you into the one lone parachute she could find, wrapped you around your little brother and shoved you both out of the hatch. But the sky was full of blaster fire. A bolt clipped your chute and the canopy started to burn. Helpless, we watched you fall, imagining we could hear your screams. We thought we would die too until a teleport beam yanked us across, uh, yanked us aboard the starship. And I'm gonna stop there because that's the relevant section for what we're going to cover today. This story was also picked up by Ben Rabb in Uncanny Origins number one, which is a flashback to Cyclops's childhood as well. Uh, it's been retold in the comics a number of times because it's just such an indelible part of the story. Uh, Cyclops falls, hits his head, and it may be a brain injury, it may be a mental block, but he's had trouble controlling his optic blasts ever since. And this kind of sense of responsibility that he ends up with is uh, is across the board part of this character. So before we even begin, we're going to spend a lot of time on that particular story told in this particular issue. But let me hear about your, uh, your thoughts on Cyclops as a character and uh, what you know about his history before we begin. Any thoughts on this? Well, I, for my part, I, I always loved this this origin story. It, it it's just so comic booky in the most excellent way. You know, you and your brother are 
fall out of a plane after your family is kind of attacked by this alien race. And that's, that's, it, there's an emotional aspect to it while still being kind of having this awesome sci-fi aspect to it as well. So that's what I always look for. So I, I always enjoyed it. A little bit of childhood trauma changes everything. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, Jamie, any thoughts on Cyclops? Uh, I really loved how different creators have taken liberties on him. Like if in uh, X-Men Evolution, they tackled it and it was like he had to be upgraded to be able to control his optic blast. But I, I just think he he's always been a character you either love or hate in my opinion, at least like he's either written as like the boy scout or he's just written. So unlikable. Mm -hmm. So I really like seeing different people's takes on him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bob, how about you? Any thoughts on the character Cyclops? Almost none. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now the whole context here, remember I said I was basically did the Avengers side of this stuff. I am not an X-Men fan. I have read almost no x-men comics of the, uh, the new x-men i read some of the old one the 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 neil adams ones <clears throat> i read certainly the first few issues of the x-men and then i stopped and they're not my favorite group <laughs> so, so you've got somebody in this in this in this group which maybe hopefully will prove to be interesting that's not an X-Men fan. I don't hate the X-Men. I've watched the movies, actually, more than I've read the books. I think, I think I just lost track of them at some point and never caught up with all these characters. All viewpoints are welcome on this podcast. We've literally had people on the show who've never read a comic book. I'm not joking. <laughs> so we have, to me. we have divisiveness from all sides. So I, I appreciate your willingness to go on this ride with us today. Uh, mm -hmm. Cyclops, uh, Jamie, you mentioned Cyclops is often seen as the Boy Scout. He's the leader. He's the good guy. And then we hold him really accountable for his mistakes because of that. Like when he cheats on his wife with Jean Grey, right? Like that kind of stuff. Uh, we got to review last time Marvel Snapshots X-Men number one, which really delves into Cyclops' time at the orphanage. Uh, it's a story by Jay Edidin that very very much paints Cyclops as kind of neurodivergent, a little bit autistic, mm -hmm. super hyper-focused on whatever's in front of him. Uh, and he throws himself into being a leader at all costs. So I like this character a lot, but I understand a lot of people do not like him much. Okay, so the animated series gave him kind of a bad reputation a lot. That's a lot of people that, that, that don't like him. Uh, that That's what they're referencing, I feel like. I feel like if you love Cyclops, you hate Havoc. And if you love Havoc, you hate Cyclops. That's kind of the, what I've noticed on this show a lot of times. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense too. So as we're delving in, looking at the cover of this issue, we have a gorgeous image of Cyclops standing kind of against a black background. He's shooting his optic blast straight up into the sky like it's a... Like it's a beacon of some kind. And the uh, the the red light from his blast is kind of illuminating the mist or the clouds around him. I think it's a beautiful cover. Uh, any thoughts on this art before we start into the issue? I always thought the X-Men Origins covers were usually always awesome. Uh, this one, I, I, I love the atmosphere of it and how the red, his, his beams are taking, it's the lighting, it's the lighting source of the whole image. There's so many ways that artists will try to portray this kind of red blast. Uh, and I, I always love to see a creative way. So that like rocketeer stance where he's like chest out, arms back, and then just blasting into the sky. It's uh, it's kind of iconic for me in that way. Uh, Bob, did you enjoy the art on this cover? 
Yes, very much. I think it's very, 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 very well done. It does raise the the one issue to me of, of Cyclops is uh, just how powerful is that Optoblast, and and you know, is this this one looks like it could bring down uh, a seven oh seven. Yeah, and <laughs> and is it that powerful, or is it not, or or it is is it is it something he can turn up and turn down at will? Now you probably guys probably know the lore on this. And, yeah, there's there's a couple yeah. pieces to that. He can uh, he absorbs solar energy, and the more he stores up, the more powerful his blast can be. So there's times he's insanely powerful. There's times when his power source is lower. In the early comics, he also like will sh shift his visor. Like the more the visor is open, the more it will blast things. And the narrow it gets, the more like stringent and focused. So it could be like a little laser that can perform a surgery, or it can be a big old thing that knocks the whole building down. So it's kind of what you need it to be, depending on the story. So if he forgets yeah. to plug, if it forgets to plug it in before he goes to bed, he has problems on <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and at some point they decided that his eyes are actually a, a portal into a different dimension, and that's that's where this energy is coming from, which is fascinating. But I, I, I've always liked how his powers kind of mirror his emotional state, and they're always very controlled, but then other times they'll be drawn as being rippling and out of control. Depending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like yeah. this. I like this character a lot, and, and he's often drawn very sexy, which of course I love. <laughs> Above, what were you going to say? Oh, I just didn't think that uh, I don't know where it started, I, but I think it was Cyclops that the number of people since Cyclops who have been able to shoot things out of their eyes. Um, Superman can do it now. And uh, 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 Wonder Man uh, had some, you know, sort of adjacent powers, not exactly the same, but uh, Cyclops seemed to have, have started perhaps from the ads in the backs of comic books where you could buy funny glasses that could make you see see in strange ways that uh, it just seems to be a really great comic setup or, uh, or homelander from the boys that he uses his eye beams all the time okay delving in i'm going to give a little bit of continuity very quickly the story opens with professor x showing a cyclops that's supposedly 22 years old although that does not make sense when you read the original books Professor X is thinking of taking a departure from the team. This is uh, a reference to where we're about to go on the podcast. Professor X has been believed to be dead for a long time. Changeling dies in his place, and he's hiding in the basement, preparing for the alien invasion of the Xenox. So before he dies, he shows Cyclops Cerebro, teaches him how to use it. Then he confides in Jean Grey and kind of disappears. Uh, Cyclops, in his origins, after the plane crash, ends up in an orphanage uh, that's run by Mr. Sinister. Havoc is adopted out to a family. So we've, we've covered some of this stuff on the podcast already. He then runs away at a certain point, uh, and the Jack of Diamonds, who's a bad guy, gets him and Professor X recruits him from there. So this issue will reference some of those things, but it also glosses over a lot of it. And the most problematic portrayal for me is Cyclops' age. It makes him much older than a lot of the comics do originally, but not ultimately a huge issue. So we see a very focused, very kind of neurodivergent Cyclops at the start of this being shown Professor X by, or excuse me, being shown Cerebro by Professor X. Uh, he says, I need you to take over as leader. Cyclops says, I'm not really sure I want to do that. I've been thinking about leaving the team. I found this doctor who might be able to cure my eyes. And this is a storyline from the 60s comics that kind of just disappears. We get mm -hmm. the doctor's name here. Professor X says, you're talking about a guy named Dr. Stathis, S-T-A-T-H-I-S. 
uh, he has a cure. I think it's unlikely. Also, he's a mutant. And by the way, this character has never been mentioned again. We don't know who it is. We don't know what his power is. Uh, Professor X then also indicates that there's some mutant triplets that are being indicated by Cerebro as appearing in South America. And he may need Scott to go find them. So he's kind of giving him a sense of responsibility. Instead of leaving, I need you to take over for me is really being emphasized here. And then Bob, let me have you take the next section of the book. We flash back to the plane incident. Uh, yeah, well, that one is pretty much just as you described it. Um, you know, with the flying the, uh, the old plane and uh, getting shot down and the guys bail out. Uh, the most brilliant part of the whole story, I think, is that you played me that song beforehand, this this uh, the little biplane that could is, is what it is. It's very similar to the little locomotive that could or, <laughs> or Rudolph the Red-Dosed Reindeer, uh, and and that it's that that he encourages the the kid to sing on the way down while he's clutching them, and I think that's brilliant. So Scott uh, is clutching Alex, and he's singing yeah. a song called "The Biplane Evermore" by an old band from the '60s called the Irish Rovers. And the idea of him singing to his brother as they fall out of the sky is so heartbreaking. It's really sad. What did you think of the art portrayal here, Bob? Um, I thought, again, it became really, really well done once the plane came. I felt somehow the, the art, the, the opening section, I thought, was not as successful as what happens when the, uh, the kids bail out that the weakest part about it is is um there's something to be hypercritical there's something not quite believable about the perfunctory way in which uh professor x says hey you need to be the leader and he seems very young and uh, i rather i i wished kind of rather than him talking about I'm going to be leaving, which I found kind of not very interesting because it's so it's dismissed so quickly that, that he and I know what it, what he's doing is referencing issues in the past, but I wish it had spent a little bit of time with Professor X really convincing him that he was capable of of doing it because I thought that was more something that was kind of missing. Uh, also the in a funny way, the, the layout isn't quite as, it just isn't quite as interesting. I think there, there's a lot of just frontal views of, of, uh, of his face. Um, there's also the weirdest ear in the world on page, is it page two? You look, you look at the second panel down and it looks like somebody has stuck a piece of putty behind his ear so it's sticking out like this it's a very it's a very weird ear now having done that kind of weird stuff in the past every once in a while you'll do something and you don't really it's not until it either comes out or you look at it or else it's four in the morning and you're saying i don't care i'm just yeah, i'm gonna leave it i'm gonna turn it in um but it is it, it is a little strange um the uh, and one of the interesting things about not being hardcore X Men. I don't mean I hate the X Men. No, I get but, it. 
But not being a hardcore guy with all the lore, I think it's sometimes things that are that can be problematical in comics. I think for you guys that are probably really heavy-duty X-Men, sir, you know Dr. Stath, he's a mutant himself, you know, I found him with this. Um, isn't something of particular interest to me. Sure. You know, all, all of that stuff. It's sort of like little bits that I think if you're if you're into it and, and those little bits, oh yeah, that reference, yes, that's great. If you're coming in and buying an X-Men comic for the first time, you may be thinking, oh, I have to know a lot of stuff that I don't know. And that's <laughs> that's always a little whereas once you got into the uh, um the plain stuff, it seems like he really got inspired, the artist and and the writer. And they're following through now. Now that you now that I know that it's from a Chris Claremont description, I can understand you had a very good writer writing you basically a scenario for this. Well, in probably, the Chris in the Chris the comics, yeah. In the Chris Claremont story, we get one panel of this plane, basically, and the and the fall from the sky. And the Ben Rab story that I mentioned, we get three pages devoted. This story breaks it down. We take like 10 pages for this. Mm -hmm. The idea of these boys watching their parents burn up to death as they were just safe moments before and they're singing or he's singing to them as they fall. It's really beautifully captured. That's my favorite part of this issue is how it slows down this tragedy. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my 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 whole my, when I first read the first few pages like that I described, I thought, oh, this is OK. It's it's, it's well enough done. It doesn't seem like anything special. And then it became very special. Yeah, yeah, with 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 the 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 plane crash and attack and the parachutes and all that sort of stuff and yes, breaking it down into the sum of its parts was brilliantly done. Yeah, and, they, they uh, really give it a lot of real estate, which is really nice. Uh, ben, yeah. will you take us through the next section of the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so after they they crash down from from the plane, there there's you know it's continued to be broken down and decompressed this this whole situation so so it's at night it's in in the forest it, it's cold you can see like mist coming out of their breath and and they've lit lit this fire uh scott's like holding his head he's having this like these head pains these like migraines of some kind and uh but he's just trying to hold it together because he's trying to take care of his uh little brother alex and of course, Alex is super concerned. He notices that that Scott's having these pains, and he's like, "Do you have a tumor? Are you going to die?" And and Scott's just trying to. Scott basically doesn't have any time to to worry about himself. He feels like so uh, he's just doing everything he can to to you know say you know don't worry about me. We need to figure out what what's next. We need to um, focus on what we're going to do. Um, Alex you know, mentions that he he doesn't even really miss their parents at this point. Um, and uh, Scott says that they're both in shock. Like, like Scott just seems remarkably in, in control, but, but also you can tell there's, there's some, uh, you know, there's trauma happening where, where this is going to have long-term kind of effects on, on his emotional being, but, but he's kind of keeping it control in the moment. And uh, yeah. So then this, uh, this helicopter uh, finds them. This 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 convoy of soldiers in this helicopter, and there's this nice nice beat where you can kind of see uh, Scott's optic blast start to come out when the helicopter starts to land. 
but it doesn't quite um you know happen all the way and uh once again you know scott's just trying to take control of the situation the soldiers you know ask them what they're doing here um alex is hiding and uh he he's just saying you know alex come out we, we can talk to the these these soldiers here and um we don't really see the the fallout of of what happened there. I I know in you know sort of X Men history, Alex and and Scott end up being separated somehow, and we don't necessarily see the the fallout of that in this um, scene here. But the, the next time we see Scott, he's he's in the orphanage uh, in bed, and his his head is continuing to hurt all these years later. So uh, he's now it says he's 17 years old now in in the orphanage and so we see his first optic blast uh fire through this wall in the orphanage and then he he panics and 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 kind of just runs away and 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 is just he's in this alley just wondering what's happening to him and, and who knows what sinister's done in the meantime good lord <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> right apparently sinister i guess ran this whole orphanage which this is a whole thing we we figure out later on but but yeah the uh the idea of cyclops and storm as the biggest leaders of the x-men both of them are characters whose uh whose childhoods were basically ripped from them both of their origins involve plane crashes both of them lost their parents at a very young age mm -hmm. uh, there's something really indelible uh, chris claremont loves a plane and he loves a plane crash mm -hmm. <laughs> he loves some childhood drama as well right uh, he loves a pilot yeah he loves all that <laughs> yeah women pilots is another thing uh jamie mm -hmm. take us through the uh the next section of the book tell us what happens uh so it immediately the next page it starts off with professor x's first meeting with uh, Cyclops and he presents him with his Ruby court visor and he asks him just to hear him out what he has to say. That's all he asks for payment for the Ruby court visor. And the next page we go to, we jump to Scott being 21 years old. This is the famous X-Men's first battle with Magneto, uh, they, Professor X and uh, Cyclops are having a, a telepathic conversation and it gets into his visor how he can make it larger and smaller and he uses it to help penetrate uh magneto's force field and he's kind of has this like little uh spat with professor x where they're kind of like stop telling me what to do i know what i'm doing and he finally gets in and magneto attacks him immediately and uh, Magneto points out to him that like he can he's heard the whole conversation through magnetic like uh, magnetic wavelengths, and uh, he knows that he's been called the bad guy and everything. And he just like wants him to basically. I took it as like he just wants him to like grow up and look at start thinking for himself and uh know what he know what he's talking about before he does stuff and to do things differently which i think is a huge thing with magneto is like is he the bad guy or is he a good guy he's he's already lived through people doing horrible things to other people so he's just trying to persevere and save his people 
60s Magneto was this ranting lunatic who just wanted to dominate the world. But there was an element of I'm trying to preserve the world for mutants in between him being really predatory and murdery and awful all the time. Uh, some may say he was even Liefeldy. <laughs> but uh, this is another thing that Chris Claremont did that was just brilliant is give this character a backstory in trauma. We have the World War II concentration camp survival stuff. And then we get to go back and analyze the 60s books with that in mind. So when Stuart Moore takes that scene, uh, this is completely a breakaway from X-Men number one, obviously. This doesn't happen. Professor X is much more involved in the fight. We have this kind of one-on-one engagement between Magneto. I'm going to read a little bit of his words really quickly. Magneto says to Scott in this scene, which is set during X-Men 1, I've been monitoring Xavier's Institute, eavesdropping on the poison with which he infects your minds, his fairy tales of good and evil. I have seen evil boy, seen the horrors mankind inflicts upon itself. This is not evil. This is mere expediency. The tiger hunts the wild boar. The shark devours the minnows of the sea, such as the natural order. Charles Xavier denies that order. He preaches cooperation, communication between mutants and our human forebears. A quick study of history shows he has already lost, which is an interesting thing. It's a, a particular way in which he views Xavier. Uh, as uh, he sees as humans as less than him, whereas Xavier sees them as equals who should be peacefully lived among. Uh, so that interpretation of the philosophy, I think, is always interesting when you see it painted in that way. Uh, any thoughts on that from you guys? This portrayal of Magneto here. Yeah, I think it's it's so, such an interesting way of creating a characterization of Magneto that can coexist with what you see in the 60s, but still include the the elements of his character you'll you'll see later on i i really in, enjoyed this segment for me with the timeline of comic books being so spread out it's like how old is magneto here true did it just happen because it just happened like 15 years prior in real history but in comic book history is this like the 80s so you know, uh, it, go, back to, long... go back to my interview with Tom Brevoort, where I asked the question, what is the sliding time scale? Because <laughs> we have this thing in Marvel where one character said in the 40s. So when the book was written in the 60s, 20 years had passed. But now that we're reading it in the 2010s, everything slid forward. So really 60 years have passed. Uh, Captain well, like, America was originally in the iceberg for 20 years, and now he was in it for 100, right? <laughs> it's just uh, well, that's, like, that's one of the fascinating Kitty started at 13, and now they're saying she's only like 22. But Cyclops was, what, 15, 16, and now they're saying he's in his 30s. The character's aged she... for a minute, and then it just slowed <laughs> way down. <laughs> yeah. Bob, is that a challenge you ever faced, uh, the sliding timescale concept? Um, not that much. It was uh, just accepted that they were comic book age, which meant... Uh, at that time, we, it was just that, you know, the, the comic book characters aged at a much uh, slower pace than, than real people did. And uh, so we were still in that. We, there was not a lot of... Uh, it wasn't until Mark was one of the first people that began to worry about it. Uh, so uh, Magneto has a moment here as well where he's just very sincere with Cyclops. Uh, he he just says, I want a moment. I want you to hear me. Sooner or later, mutants will rule this earth. 
It is even simpler than destiny. It's phylogeny. And if you look up phylogenesis, it means the diversification of a, a species where, where there's an evolutionary change and things branch off, which is a very smart portrayal here. Uh, and, uh, you know, Cyclops is just caught up in the fact you've murdered people, you've hijacked things. It's a terrible thing what you've done. But Magneto is really emphasizing we are friends, like we are allies. There is no need for us to be different from each other. It's a fascinating portrayal. Uh, and again, Magneto is always one of our very favorites. Uh, so Cyclops disagrees. He's choosing Xavier's dream. They battle it out. The X-Men arrive and then we pick it back up into X-Men number one with a slightly different trend. The Cyclops mm -hmm. says he probably could have killed me. Uh, but they end up as allies instead. Uh, so then we go back to the present where the issue opened back at the beginning. Uh, Xavier, this is still set in the 60s. Xavier says, uh, you know, have you accepted? And Cyclops says, yeah, yeah, I accept. I'll lead your team. So we get the childhood trauma section. We get the Xavier recruiting him section, which doesn't really work. I'll talk about that in a second. And then we get Cyclops really having a chance to reckon with Magneto's philosophy versus Xavier's. Those are kind of the three parts of this story. And it uh, kind of delves into a particular character, uh, a, a complex set of traits. Uh, it's an interesting portrayal of him. The reason the Xavier thing doesn't work, Cyclops' powers activate, he blasts through a wall, and then Xavier's like, here I am, here's your ruby quartz, which does not match the origin story at all. There's so much that's skipped over, but again, what are you to do? <laughs> we assume it's a creative interpretation. Yeah, it has a little bit of that feeling of, oh, I was carrying this around in my pocket just in case I met somebody who had shot beams out of his pocket. Right, it, yeah, is. I thought that was yeah. pretty random. <laughs> well, in how he the orphanage was at a farm, and then all of a sudden he's in the city. Yeah, he gets over a fence and all of a sudden he's in a city. In the 60s books, this is a Roy Thomas story. He's been brought into the city to visit a special eye doctor who designed the ruby quartz for him to help him with his migraines. But it turns out they also block his optic blasts. Mm -hmm. And then a supervillain named Jack of Diamonds recruits him. And then Xavier kind of saves Cyclops from Jack of Diamonds. But he also has Cyclops murder Jack of Diamonds. And he's like, well... I guess that's what happened. You better come live with me now. It's like a very predatory. <laughs> I, I, I miss Jack of Diamonds in this story. I gotta say, I, I always, I always liked him. He's the worst. Uh, Roy Thomas just brought him back in uh, X Men Legends one and two, which is set after the old sixties books. So if you haven't read the new volume of X Men Legends, you can okay, I, that wasn't on my radar to read. But now that I know Jack of Diamonds is Jack okay, of Diamonds, well. <laughs> and they give him like teleportation powers and like a healing factor. Go ahead, Bob. I'm sorry. No, I said I'll have to get, I'll have to pick up that one too. That's that sounds like fun. Roy's always fun. Roy's a great guy. I got to I got to interview Roy on my show last year. It was a big deal. Uh, I was I was really thrilled. Uh, well, this is a fun issue. I uh, I mostly love the singing in the sky section that Bob covered. Yeah, yeah. Um, any final thoughts as we are wrapping up? Just that the one time I got to do Magneto, it was unfortunate, Magneto, 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 uh, was the, uh, he, he met Dr. Doom, and he was, at that time, it was a Bill Ratner way show, and he was pretty much just a nutcase. Was that in a supervillain team-up or an Emperor? Yeah, yeah it was supervillain team-up. God, I can't believe nice. we didn't talk about Emperor Doom today, it's so good. <laughs> I gotta read it, I, I haven't. It's a Marvel graphic novel by Bob Hall. Go back and read it. It's amazing. It's 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 super. Uh, me and Dave, Dave McElhinney is the writer, and it's the best thing I ever did for Marvel, I think. Most fun. And uh, I, I will tell you, I, I one of the thrills I had is there was a pundit, a, 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 a political writer out of named uh, Leonard Pitt out of Florida. Very good writer. 
and he's syndicated and he's in my local paper. And about, oh, eight years ago, he referenced Emperor Doom uh, in, in, his, in his political writing, uh, which I was absolutely wow. thrilled by. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. Go read it. It's a good read. It's it's one of the best Doctor Doom stories, which is saying something because that guy. Has yeah, I think, we, I think we got I think we got Doctor Doom right uh, in that one. He's so good. Well, uh, gentlemen, as we are wrapping up, recognizing this issue or this up issue, this episode's going to come out on January second, right into launching the new year. Uh, Gray Malkin Lane has some incredible things planned for the new year. I put some announcements out. Uh, and we've got an incredible lineup. I'm already booked into March and uh, some of the talent that's coming on the show is just astounding. So I'm really thrilled. We're also getting ready to wrap up the 1960s stuff. So the podcast is going to take a whole different turn in the middle of next year uh, as we bring in different characters and more content. I'm thrilled. We've been taking our time getting here, but I, uh, I've really enjoyed the slow burn and I'm excited to see what happens after we finish the first volume of the X-Men. Uh, some major things coming out on the show as well. We have the weekly podcast uh, uh, episodes being released on Patreon where we're doing character focused stuff. And it's so fun. If you haven't heard those episodes, it's uh, maybe the most fun I'm having on the show. And I'm having a lot of fun <laughs> on the regular show. Uh, as we are wrapping up today uh, for each of our guests, let us know where we can find you online and uh, what we have to look forward to, if there's anything you would like to plug. Uh, Gray Malkin Lane is Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Feel free to say hi anytime. Uh, the next episode after this one is going to delve into one more origin story. We're going to go to Avengers Origins, uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, uh, just in time for the new release of the new Scarlet Witch series and the guests on that, which I can't even believe, uh, my friend Steve Orlando, and then I'm also bringing Russell Dowderman on for the first time, which I'm mm, so wow. excited about. So cool. uh, we've got some great stuff coming up after that. Uh, Patreon episode right around this time is going to be the character Asp from the Serpent Society with the incredible artist, Matt Horak. So watch for both of those things. Uh, let's go in the same order of, uh, of Bob, Ben, Jamie. Uh, where can we find you online and what would you like to plug? Um, BobHall.com for a website. Uh, uh, Bob Hall Comic Artist on Facebook or just face me, uh, just uh, friend me on the regular Facebook. Um, I'll be doing a half of a book, a 10-page story uh, in a, in a two-part book uh, for Valiant of an origin story for their new sh version of Shadow Man in a, in a game. So they wanted an, an origin that made him agree with the game, and they decided to bring me back to do Shadow Man, which they hadn't done before, and I'm still <laughs> doing it, and it'll be out on one of the free comic book days. Incredible. That, that's usually uh, the first the first Wednesday in May is usually where that is. Yeah, I'm expecting that that's when they're heading for you. Wonderful, Bob. Uh, uh, what a joy to have you on the show today. Really, truly. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, ben. Uh, yeah, wherever you're listening to this, you should be able to find Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Uh, it's just Not a Hoax, exclamation point, Not a Dream, exclamation point, named after that um, X-Men issue where Charles Xavier supposedly dies, but didn't really. Um <laughs> I, so I've done an episode on him. I've done an episode on some other X-Men. So you, you can listen to them if you want. Um, also, it's uh, not a dream on Twitter and not a hoax on Instagram. Um, so I'm around. So in thanks, Chad. And, yeah. In reference to Charles Xavier's death, we're getting ready to cover X-Men 65, the revelation that he's alive. And I've got some really fun plans for that particular show. So stay tuned, listeners. It's going to be great. Yeah, I'm excited for that one. So uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, uh, Bob, Jamie, great, great talking to you.
It's good to meet you. Excuse me, I'm, I'm going to have to sign off what it was while my phone was a workman has just arrived that I've been trying to get to come. <laughs> You're totally great. We're just wrapping up anyway. Yeah, Bob, thank you, you, you got to so get much. on that. Thank, yeah. thank you so much. It really was fun. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Have a beautiful day, my friend. Uh, and then Jamie. Uh, you can find me at Jamie Faye X on all major social media platforms. Uh, if you're following my work, you know that I've been doing a huge X-Men redesign pro pet project. I'm at 70 plus characters at this point. Um, so I, I just I just finished Tarot from the Hellions last night. So uh, I got some uh, Imperial Guard go coming out soon. So nice. a lot of people seem to have been really loving this project I've been doing. So that's mostly what I've been doing. I've been doing some uh, nightlife posters with my artwork and people are loving those so fantastic follow me on jamie's also going to do a piece for my art wall when you get around to it i know i i i've started sketching I, i'm looking for a fun pose for her uh jamie's going to be drawing the iconic marvel uh drag queen the white rabbit who i love 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 oh nice <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, everybody, thank you so much. We will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.